All right, Hotep, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecture writer, and historian. So it is Sunday, April 17th, 2022. And we are live. So I, uh, originally I was not scheduled to broadcast today. The radio station is shut down. Uh, because it's Easter Sunday. So normally my show is on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But so since the radio station was shut down, I wasn't going to broadcast today. I have other things scheduled to do. But because this is Easter, Easter Sunday and because of the Facebook post that I did earlier today, and it's got over 300 likes and it's gotten hundreds of comments, I said, okay, so look, I'm going to come on and we'll do a quick broadcast. It's gotten 125 comments so far, so far. Um, but, 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 um, so I said, I'm going to come on and, uh, talk briefly about East, the origins of Easter, pagan traditions, rabbits laying chicken eggs and African Americans. All right. So share this broadcast on your social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in as well. Turn on live notifications when you, uh, so you know when we go live. Follow us at The African History Network on Facebook and Michael M. Hotep on YouTube, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. All right. Now, I have to, I have some slides to show you, probably because I was working on the, my PowerPoint presentation before I came on. Um, so I've talked about the history of Easter going back to like 2011. I was referencing, I went through my archives, I was looking at some of my notes going back to 2011, dealing with the history of Christmas. Now, I mean, history of Easter, history of Easter. Now, I'm not telling anybody don't celebrate Easter, okay? But what I'm saying is we should at least know the history of what it is that we are celebrating, okay? I'm not telling somebody don't celebrate Easter, but we should at least know the history of what it is that we're celebrating. And just as when I talk about celebrating Christmas or St. Patrick's Day, things like this, I have to reference, you know, Dr. Shaka Musa Barashango in his two books, African People and European Holidays and Mental Genocide, book one and book two, because in these books, he goes through and breaks down the history of all these European holidays that we have been taught to celebrate, okay? So I'm not saying don't celebrate Easter, okay? I'm saying we should at least know the history behind, like the historical origins behind what it is we've been taught to celebrate, okay? And I know I may say some things that are outside the circumference of some people's awareness. So I'm just going to go ahead and do uh, my disclaimer that I usually do when I deal with quote unquote controversial uh, information like this. And I learned this from one of my teachers, Dr. Ray Hagens. Um, let me pull this up here. Um, so I usually when I do my presentations and uh, when I do lectures, especially in front of mixed audiences, things like this, um, I know I may say some things that are, that are outside the circumference of some people's awareness. 
Just because you never heard it before, disagree with it or don't like it does not mean it's not true. It just means you have to do some research to understand what it is that I'm talking about. So I usually have people put their fingers together to form a circle. And I usually say something like this, the space inside this circle represents my realm of knowledge. Everything that I think I know about whatever I think I know is represented within the circumference of this circle. I must keep in mind that there are still things to know that exist outside the circumference of my own awareness. Now, the reason why I say this, and, and if you've ever seen me do lectures, especially in person, I usually say something like this because people come to these different presentations with different levels of understanding of history. Okay. And I mean, half our people still think Willie Lynch historically existed, which goes to another uh, Facebook post I did today dealing with the fact that Willie Lynch is fictitious and the Willie Lynch letters are fraud and Willie Lynch never historically existed. And some of our people can't give it up and turn it loose. Like Invoke said, Invoke said, give it up and turn it loose. Some of our people just want to hold on to these myths for whatever reason. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but it, they don't want to do a real history. They want to hold on to myths. So just because you know everything that you know about what you know does not mean that you know everything there is to know about what you know. There's still things that exist outside the circumference of your own awareness. And I learned that from uh, uh, Dr. Ray Hagens. Now, here is the Facebook post that I did today, this morning. And um, got a bigger response than I thought it would get. And people are still liking it and commenting on it. Let me go to it right here. Uh, hold on. Where is it? Uh, this right here. Okay. So, um, so far as I got like 346 likes and 125 comments. We did this on our Facebook fan page, the African history network and on my personal page, Michael M. Hotel. So, I said Easter is a movable Christian holiday because a lot of people don't know what determines when Easter is celebrated. It's usually on a different Sunday each year. Okay. A lot of people don't know why it's a different Sunday, why it's a movable feast, what determines when Easter is celebrated. So Easter is a movable Christian holiday. It is, it is celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon following the vernal equinox. And I'm going to pull this up uh, also here. Let's see. I'm going to pull this slide up so it'll be easier for you to see it. You can check this out on our Facebook fan page and, and the African History Network and comment if you want to. Um, okay, let me see. I think if I do it this way, it'll be easier for you to see it. Let's do it like this. Okay. All right. So Easter is a movable Christian holiday. It is celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon following the vernal equinox. The vernal equinox marks the first day of spring. Vernal in Latin means spring. And equinox comes from aquanatium, which means equal night. The vernal equinox is the day of the year where you have the same amount of daylight as sun, as uh, day, same amount of daylight as nighttime. So it's usually March 20th, March 21st. That marks the first day of spring, the vernal equinox. Spring has nothing to do 
with a rodent seeing its shadow or not seeing its shadow. The groundhog. Spring has nothing to, when spring comes has nothing to do with the groundhog seeing its shadow or not seeing its shadow. Now the vernal equinox marks the first day of spring, which usually comes March 20th or March 21st. When Easter is celebrated, is based upon astronomy. To determine when Easter is celebrated is based upon astronomy. And this was one of the results of the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. One of the 21 ecumenical councils held between 325 AD and 1870. Okay, that's history. You can, you can look up Easter in an encyclopedia or dictionary, and it would tell you when Easter is celebrated, what that's determined by. It's determined by astronomy. Okay, now, um, if we go and look here at, uh, if we start looking at this briefly, then there are going to be some articles that I reference as well. Okay. Um, so when we look at the history of Easter, we're going to look at what are called, we're going to look at some of the pre-Christian celebrations and pre-Christian holidays surrounding Easter or what people call pagan traditions, okay? Or what people call pagan traditions. Um, just a second here. Okay. All right, let's go to the next slide here. Uh, and you're going to deal with the uh, goddess Istra and Ostara, okay? Germanic goddesses associated with spring and fertility. Depending upon which European language you're looking at, you may see some, see some different variations in the spelling of their names. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about the Passover story as well in the exodus of Jews or Hebrews out of Egypt. And when you actually understand the story and the average um, size of the Jew Hebrew family back then, you know, it's, you're talking about approximately a million and a half to 2 million people wandering, wandering in the desert for 40 years. Okay. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that because I ain't trying to make this long and drawn out. So Easter is a movable feast. What determines when Easter is celebrated? Why is it on a different uh, a different day each year? Uh, we talked a little bit about that already. So if we look at American Heritage Dictionary, we're going to look at some different sources. If we look at American Heritage Dictionary, Easter, E-A-S-T-E-R, -E is a Christian feast commemorating the resurrection of Jesus or Yeshua. Now, there's been a shift over the past few years to refer to it more as Resurrection Day as opposed to Easter because some Christians realize the quote-unquote pagan origins, secular celebrations, the Easter bunny, uh, Easter eggs, rabbits laying chicken eggs right there should confuse people. They say, why are you dealing with rabbits laying chicken eggs? Rabbits don't lay chicken eggs, but okay. Um, so you hear it referred to as Resurrection Sunday, but a lot of people don't even know why it's celebrated on a different Sunday each year. So 
Easter is the most significant Christian holiday, okay, out of all the Christian holidays. Even though Christmas is probably the most commercial, Easter is the most significant, okay? It, it commemorates the resurrection of, of Yeshua, Yeshua uh, ben Yosef, or, or what they call Jesus. The letter J didn't exist until 1630 AD, okay? The letter J is derived from, from the letter I, and the letter J did not always exist. So the letter J uh, didn't exist in 1630 AD. So when you look up the word Jesus in the dictionary and you go to, you can use Webster or what have you, you can use etymological dictionaries, the etymological dictionaries that I use, especially when I teach my online history classes, uh, it takes you back to Yeshua, okay? So, this deals with, if we look up uh, Jesus, and I did this recently in one of my classes. Um, let me see here. We got this. Yeah. Okay. So if we look at this here. So this is one of the online is um, etymological encyclopedias that I use, or etymological dictionaries. Etymonline.com. E-T-Y. M O E T Y M online.com. And you do, they're dealing with word origins. Okay. So if you look up the word Jesus uh, in the etymological dictionary, or you, you can go to Webster. Webster is on, uh, uh, Webster dictionary is on uh, online. You can go to Encyclopedia Britannica. I'm on Brit uh, Britannica's website very often because I pay them a subscription each month because I use them when I teach my classes. So if you look at the word Jesus, it takes you back to, uh, it's from late Latin, Iesus with an I, Iesus with an I, uh, from the Greek, uh, Iosu, I Iesus, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, I-E-S-O-U-S, Okay, so you go from the late Latin Iesus to Isus, uh, Greek, I-E-S-O-U-S, which is an attempt to render into Greek the Aramaic Semitic proper name, Jeshua, Hebrew, Yeshua, or Yahshua, which means Jah is salvation which means Jah is salvation, but it, it takes you back to the Hebrew, Yeshua with a Y, because the letter J didn't exist when the, when the Bible was written. Not, the, not the, when the Bible was written, the letter J didn't exist. And then if you look in the Holy Quran, the prophet's name is Isa with an I, because when the Quran was written, the letter J didn't exist. Okay, so... You go through and go through and read the rest of this here. All right. So you so we're dealing with the um, the English variation of coming from late Latin, Greek, Hebrew. All right. So check that out. Now, if we go to um, let's go back to the PowerPoint presentation here. So Easter, a Christian feast commemorating the resurrection of Yeshua or Jesus in English, 
the day on which this feast is observed, the first Sunday following the full moon that occurs on or next after the vernal equinox. Now, this is from American Heritage Dictionary explaining to you that what determines when Easter is celebrated is based upon astronomy, which was one of the end results of the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Then it tells you Middle English, Esther, from Old English, Eastra, E-E-A-S-T-R-E, Eastra. Okay, so we need to look at these, we need to study the etymology of these words that all, it also teaches us history at the same time. All right, so let's continue here. Now, what is Easter? Easter is a Christian holiday that celebrates the belief in the resurrection of Yeshua or Jesus the Christ. Now they say Jesus Christ, but it's actually Jesus the Christ. Okay, because Christ is a title, not a name. Christ coming from Christos, the Greek Christos means anointed or anointed one coming from the uh, Kemetic or the Metonetter, Ka-Rest, K-A-R-S-T, Ka-Rest, meaning the rising of the spirit, Ka-Rest. Okay, this is where this comes from. Now, in the New Testament of the Helios Biblos, the Sun Book or the Holy Bible, in the New Testament, the event is said to have occurred three days after Jesus was crucified by the Romans and died in roughly uh, 30 AD, died in roughly 30 AD, okay? Now, the, so even, now this is, um, from history.com, official website of the History Channel, Easter 20, 2022, okay? And they're talking about Easter. It's talking about uh, um, a brief synopsis of Easter. But if you look at, uh, I was looking at BibleGateway.com uh, yesterday because I was watching a um, presentation and if you look at uh first corinthians uh let me see here biblegateway.com um it's in the um let me see it's in the not the king james version Yeah, First Corinthians 15, uh, 15, 4. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 4. Okay. Right here. Okay. Let me pull this up. Because I'm in Google Chrome. I have it up in uh, Firefox, but I'm in Google Chrome right now. Because I was just looking at this yesterday. New International Version, NIV. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay, rose again on the third day. All right. Um, okay, let's continue here. 
All right. So the holiday uh, concludes the Passion of Christ, a series of events, and uh, begins with Lent, a 40-day period of fasting, prayer, and sacrifice, and ends with Holy Week, which includes Holy Thursday, the celebration of Jesus' Last Supper with his 12 apostles, also known as Maundy Thursday. Uh, then you have Good Friday, on which Yeshua was crucified. The crucifixion of Yeshua is obser observed. And Easter Sunday. Although a holiday of high religious significance in the Christian faith, many traditions associated with Easter date back to pre-Christian pagan times. Now, this is history.com official website of the history channel um that breaks this down and they make the relationship and i looked at numerous sources on this you can look at britannica you can look at this article here from time.com you can look at i've got stuff i printed up back in 2011 from when answers.com existed now it's encyclopedia.com they referenced 200 encyc online encyclopedias when you go study this history it takes you back to pre-Christian origins, especially what are called pagan traditions, especially what are called pagan traditions. So we'll talk about pagan in just a minute. Because pagan doesn't necessarily mean something negative. It's just, it, it, it has taken on a negative taint. It has taken on a negative uh, uh, tone, all right? Uh, so, the, and this is like, these are some of my notes here. Okay, so this is when answers.com existed, I printed this up April 12th, 2011, because I have hundreds of articles going back to actually thousands, really thousands going back over the years. But I'm just looking at stuff that I printed up from Answers.com and MSN and Carter. MSN and Carter doesn't even exist. I've got binders of historical information from MSN and Carter. But this is. This is 35 pages. This all deals with the history of Easter from different online encyclopedias, different sources. OK, this is when Answers.com existed and the Gale Encyclopedia of Food and Culture has some good information. Now, Encyclopedia.com took over from Answers.com. So Encyclopedia.com, they reference about 200 different online encyclopedias on all different topics. Okay, so if we go back here to uh, this right here. All right, so we have just a basic understanding of the Easter celebration, the largest, the, the most important uh, celebration in most important holiday in Christianity. Now, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which adheres to the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. Uh, Orthodox Easter falls on Sunday between April 4th and May 8th each year. Now, in some denominations of Protestant Christianity, and we know about the Protestant Reformation 1517 with Martin Luther, and when we deal with the... Um, when we deal with the uh, councils of Trent, the three councils of Trent from about 1545 to 1563. Uh, the councils of Trent 
were designed to one of the reasons why they were convened was to deal with the fallout from the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Church losing so many people because of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, we'll talk about the Third Council of Trent, 1563, in just a minute. So, in some denominations of Protestant Christianity, Easter Sunday marks the beginning of Easter tide or the Easter's or the Easter season, also called Easter tide. Easter tide ends on the 50th day after Easter, which is known as Pentecost Sunday. Penta in reference to five, Pentecost Sunday. Okay. Now, in Eastern Orthodox branches, Eastern Sunday serves as the start of the season of Pasha, which is Greek for Passover, which ends 40 days later with the holiday known as the Feast of the Ascension. Okay, so what determines when Easter celebrated? Okay, we talk about the first Sunday following the first full moon, following the vertical equinox. Well, when did they come up with that? So the complicated, um, the complicated date, dating for Easter, was set in 325 AD at the First Council of Nicaea which scheduled the festival to be celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon occurring next after the vernal equinox, right about March 21st. Okay. Uh, however, if the full moon occurs on the Sunday, Easter will be celebrated the following Sunday. Hence the date, hence the date of Easter can fluctuate between March 22nd and April 25th, okay? This is the period of time that Easter happens between March 22nd and April 25th. Because the Western churches, because the Western churches, Catholic and Protestant, now follow the Gregorian calendar introduced in 1582 AD by Pope uh, Gregory the 13th, but Pope, uh, Pope Gregory, Pope Gregory the 16th, uh, in um, 1582, Pope Gregory the 13th, let's say, 1582 AD. Because the Western churches, Catholic and Protestant, now follow the Gregorian calendar, the Eastern churches, which follow the unrevised Julian calendar, celebrate Easter and other church holidays on different dates. In Orthodox, um, in the Orthodox Church, Easter marks the beginning of the ecclesiastical year, okay? You can reference um, encyclopedia.com and uh, the, the uh, information they have on Easter, but also the Gale Encyclopedia, G-A-L-E, the Gale Encyclopedia on um, food and culture has information on Easter, the origins of Easter, what determines when Easter is celebrated, things like this. Okay. Now let's continue. How's everybody doing? Also, I'll give you information about the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays as well. We have uh, class number one of ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade starting up uh, 
Saturday, April 23rd. It's going to be 2 p.m. to uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's a 10-week online class that I teach. Now, where does the name Easter come from? Where does the name Easter come from? Okay, so when you study history and you study the dating systems of A.D. and B.C., A.D. meaning Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, B.C. meaning before Christ, you, you, you'll read about St. Bede, the Venerable, also referred to as the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E. -E. He was a 8th century Christian monk. Okay, or they may say Christian priest. But St. Bede the Venerable, the 8th century author of Ecclesiastical History of the English People, maintains that the English word Easter, E-A-S-T-E-R, comes from Eostre, E-O-S-T-R-E, or Eostre, E-O-S-T-R-A-E, the Anglo-Saxon goddess a spring and fertility. The Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring and fertility. Eostra or Eostre, however you pronounce it. And she was associated with spring and fertility. Spring dealing with rebirth, things growing again. Okay. Other historians maintain uh, the uh, other historians maintain that uh, that Easter derives from um, uh, in Albus, a Latin phrase that's plural for Alba or dawn, D-A-W-N, dawn, that becomes Easterum in Old High German, E-O-S-T-A-R-U-M, a precursor to the English language of today. Now, despite its significance as a Christian holiday or holy day, many of the traditions and symbols that play a key role in Easter, in, in Easter observances, actually have roots in pagan celebrations, particularly the pagan goddess Eostra and in the Jewish holiday of Passover. Now, this is from history.com in their piece on Easter. OK, so when you start studying this history, it takes you into different areas and it takes you into different cultures and different languages. All right. And you start dealing with the the, the pre-Christian origin. Same thing with Christmas. The origins of Christmas is one of the most is probably the most fascinating of all, all the all these European holidays we've been taught to celebrate. And I'm studying the history of Christmas going back to probably 2010, something like that. All right, so what does the word pagan mean? Because we keep hearing this word pagan, right? And we've been taught to, we've been taught that pagan is something negative. So what does the word pagan mean? Pagan is a word that is misused to speak negatively about a group of people, especially it's used when you talk about non-Christian people or you talk about uh in pre-Christian history, okay? And they talk about ancient Africans, and they talk about ancient Egyptians and things that they were pagan and all this stuff like this, right? To, to demean them, to denigrate them. But at the same time, Europeans 
steal aspects of African history and culture for their own benefit and try to claim it as their own. So the American Heritage Dictionary defines pagan as an adherent of a polytheistic religion in antiquity, especially when viewed in contrast to an adherent of a monotheistic religion. But see, the problem is, is that when you study traditional African spiritual systems, even though they had different emissaries and different helpers of the creator, you know, Olo Dumare's the, 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 uh, in uh, the Orisha or um, emissaries and manifestations of the one supreme force, Olo Dumare amongst the Yoruba and Ifa. You have Amun Ra, Amun Ra Ptah, the, the supreme being uh, God in, in uh, when you deal with ancient Kemet, things like this. They have different helpers, different emissaries, different manifestations, the Netaru, the different forces of nature the different manifestations of that one supreme force. But you have the same thing, Christianity, because the angels are helpers of, of, uh, of the creator of God in Christianity and the, in the saints or patron saints are going to replace the Netaru in Christianity. So when you look at, for instance, if we go and look at um, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Tony Browder, and I actually um, deal with a lot of this in, in the online classes that I teach. But if we look here briefly at, um, okay, do we want to get, let's see, do I want to get that deep into it? Let's, let's, okay, let's just, let's just keep it simple. Um, let's just, let's just keep it simple. Let's look at this right here. This is from page, um, this is now about the contributions to civilization was this page 163. Oh, I think it's 163 now about the contributions to civilization. And Browder is showing how the Greeks and Romans, um, how the Greeks and Romans, their deities were influenced by the deities in ancient Kemet. So he talks about Dehuti. And Dehuti, uh, you see here, number one, Dehuti is the ibis headed netter coming out of ancient Kemet, who is the deity of divine articulation of speech, uh, writing, measurement, things like this. And Dehuti is depicted with a staff holding a staff, two staffs that have a snake wrapped around each staff. And one snake and, and one uh, snake is wearing the uh, crown of upper Kemet. The other snake is wearing the crown of lower Kemet. OK, so we see Dehuti. And if we let me see, let's advance to the next slide here. Uh, so it says Dehuti, the netter of science, writing, measurement, divine articulation of speech and medicine holds in his hand two staffs with entwined snakes, one serpent wears the crown of upper Kemet, the other wears the crown of lower Kemet. Dehuti was referred to as Thoth by the Greeks, okay? Then the second one he showed you in the middle, the deity in the second is Hermes, uh, 
who was the Greek equivalent of Dehuti. Okay, so Hermes. We see Hermes with the winged feet, and we see the Herm Hermes is carrying a staff over his left shoulder. Okay, so Hermes is the Greek equivalent of Dehuti. So when we look at the attributes of Hermes, because all these deities have attributes, the same thing when we look at the angels in Christianity who are helpers of God. Okay, you have different types of angels. You have warrior angels like Michael. You have messenger angels like uh, uh, Gabriel. Okay, and then we're going to talk about patron saints in a minute because the patron saints in Christianity who also have different attributes replace the Neteru. Now, Hermes was the Greek equivalent of Dehuti, who was shown carrying a staff with two entwined snakes. It was called the Staff of Hermes. In Greek mythology, Hermes was associated with wisdom and the hermetic sciences were named in his honor. And then the hermetic sciences, Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, that is essential to when we deal with Freemasonry. And we know Freemasonry, the foundation of Freemasonry comes out of ancient Kemet and the Nile Valley region of Africa. And it's the African Moors who take the teachings from ancient Kemet into Europe in 711 AD. And they're gonna teach this to Europeans to our detriment because everything we taught Europeans came back to kick us in the behind. Now, the third, the third deity that you have here is Mercury, okay, amongst the Romans, even though he says Greek here, but it's Mercury amongst the Romans. They may have had Mercury with the Greeks, but it's basically with the Romans. Mercury is the Roman version of Hermes and Dehuti, and he is similar in all aspects. The staff that Mercury carries is called the Caduceus. And it has been adopted as the universal symbol of medicine. So when you look at the caduceus, do I have the caduceus here? Hold on, let me see. Yeah, right here. When we look at the caduceus and variations of the caduceus, you're looking at African culture. This comes straight from us. They stole our stuff, represented it as their own, made it seem like they created this stuff in the first place. These, these are culture bandits and then represented to the world like they created it themselves. You look right here, Arizona Latin American Medical Association. These are slides I created myself. I went and researched this. The, the American Medical Association has a, has a stick with one snake wrapped around it. That's a variation of the caduceus. Right here, the Arizona Latin American Medical Association, you see the two snakes wrapped around. You see the staff with the wings of Ra and the sun disk just straight out of African culture. Then you look at the uh, this uh, dentist association, dentistry, they have the stick, they have the staff with a snake wrapped around it. Straight out of Africa. And then we've been taught to hate who we are, love who we can't be while they're still in our culture. And then represented to the world like they created it themselves. Okay, so when we look at, so, so we see, that this comes from ancient Kemet. Now, we go, go even deeper, and then I'm going to get right back to Easter, but this is still right on the same subject. To go even deeper, 
we look, we talk about Dahuti, right? And let me see, is this the right slide? Is this the right? Do I have, because I have it blown up. Hold on, where is it? Well, I have it blown up. Um, it's in, oh, I know what it is. It's in um, another presentation. Hold on. Let me show you this. Okay, so um, let me pull this up here. Looking at the Houthi. What I say may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Okay, just because you disagree with it or don't like it does not mean it's not true. It just means you may have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about. So when we talk about the um, the concept of the virgin birth, the adoration, and the uh, the virgin birth and the the adoration, the immaculate conception, things like this, right? These are these are ancient African principles. And let me try to open this back up. Okay, here we go. These are ancient African principles. And a lot of this we've been taught to run away from. Okay, we've been taught to run away from it. And, and just to be perfectly honest with you, um, and I'm, I'm trying to say this as del delicately as I can, we, we have to understand the difference between world history and religious literature. Okay, just to, just to say it as delicately as I can. We have to understand the difference between world history and religious literature. Okay. Um, world history is what happened, when it happened, how it happened, who, what, when, why, where, how, the names of the people, things like this. Historical events, places, times, dates, things like this. This is world history. Okay. World history is in world history books. Religious literature and world history are not the same thing. Okay, world history is in world history books. Religious literature is in religious literature. Okay, so I'm not saying don't believe what you don't believe, but I'm saying you have to know where to look for what it is that you are searching for. Okay, so we have to. You ever go? You ever go to historical museums? You ever go to historical museums and they have, um, you know, they they have uh, uh, statues and artifacts and things like this from ancient Africa or West Africa or what have you, or they have them from Europe, uh, they have them from China, different things like this, right? When you go to historical museums, this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Do you ever wonder why you don't see biblical characters in historical museums? I mean, <laughs> I mean, now, if, they, if they do have biblical characters in historical museums, it's like it's like the biblical section. OK, they may have a statue of the Virgin Mary. And the information they say may say, according to the Bible, such and such. 
But usually when you go to historical museums, they usually don't have biblical characters there. You may find an exception here and there, but the overwhelming majority, 95, 98, 99% of what you see in historical museums is not biblical characters. Okay, so uh, we have to understand the difference. Okay, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. We have to understand the difference. Doesn't mean that there aren't truths in religious texts and things like this. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying world history is in world history books. Religious literature is something different. Even though they talk about occurrences in different parts of the world that exist, Egypt and Jerusalem and, and things like this, right? That's that's how people get confused. So if we look here at page 95, very quickly, now belly contributions to civilization, because I really ain't planning here to be this long. Uh, really didn't plan to be here this long, but uh, page 95, Browder talks about um, the story of Asara Aset and Heru is the first story in the recorded history of a man of a holy royal family, the Trinity, the Trinity, immaculate conception, virgin birth, and resurrection. Immaculate conception, virgin birth, and resurrection. Evidence of this Trinity is known to have existed in ancient Nubia or Ta-Nehisi as late as 3,300 BCE, before the Common Era, before Christ, 3,300 years before the Common Era, before Christ, at least to have known, is, is to known to have existed in ancient Nubia at, as late as, I'm sorry, as late as 3300 BCE. This is a, a, a ancient story that's retold over and over and over and over again, adapted to various people's cultures. Read all the stories. That's fine. I'm not saying don't read that one, read this one. Read all the stories. That's fine. Carved on the walls of the temple of Luxor, circa 1380 BCE before the common era or before Christ are the scenes which depict the following. One, the Annunciation. The Netter Dehuti, who we just talked about, okay, Dehuti, who had the two staffs with a snake wrapped around each staff, who's the, who's the, the Netter, a divine articulation of speech, is also the Netter that records in the book, the results of when your heart is weighed against the feather of Ma'at when you die on the, on the, at the judgment scene and when your heart is weighed on the scales of Ma'at. Okay, that's another conversation. The Annunciation, the Netta Dehuti is shown announcing to the virgin all set the coming of their, uh, the coming of uh, Heru, okay? Let me see, let's go back to this here. Okay, the, the natural, the Huti is shown announcing to the Virgin all set the coming birth of their son Heru, who the Greeks called Horus. 
Number two, the Immaculate Conception. The the so uh, so the bottom the bottom you see one two panel one two three four. Okay, so you see the Nectar Dehuti, the with the with the Ibis head, the the head of the Ibis bird, announcing to Osset the Virgin, who the Greeks called Isis, the coming birth of their son Heru. Then the second panel, you the Immaculate Conception. The Netter Neph, K-N-E-P-H, who represents the Holy Ghost. And the Netter Heru, who the Greeks called Hathor, are shown symbolically impregnating or set by holding the onx, which is the African symbol of eternal life or the African key of life. The onk, A-N-K-H, holding the onk to her nostrils. Of the virgin mother to be. They are symbolically impregnating all set. The virgin. Now, when you look at the constellation of Virgo, when you study astronomy and you look at the constellation of Virgo, Virgo is called the virgin. But the word Virgo is Latin for virgin. The word Virgo is Latin for virgin. In ancient times, the constellation of Virgo was the constellation of Osset, the virgin. So if we go back and look, and then panel number three at the top, panel number three, the virgin birth. Osset is shown sitting on the birthing stool and the newborn child is attended by midwives because we, we knew that it made more sense to sit on the birthing stool and let gravity take its course than lay on your back and try to push the baby out. And then number four, at the bottom, the adoration. The adoration, the newborn Heru is, is portrayed receiving gifts from three kings or magi while being adored by a host of gods and men. Does any of this sound familiar? And we know in the Helios Biblos, in some book, it doesn't tell how many wise men. The, the three is in reference to the three stars in Orion's belt, Orion the hunter, the three stars in Orion's belt, and then the star Sirius, which was the star in the east, that in the story of the wise men, the three wise men, they said they follow a star in the east. But when you look at, when you, they, said, they, see, they said they came from the Orient. In the story, they said they came from the Orient, and they, they were headed to uh, Bethlehem, okay? And they followed the star in the east. So that's the, that's the uh, star Sirius, which is in the constellation of Canis Major, the big dog, the, 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 the big dog, uh, the star Sirius, the dog star. And um, now the problem is, is that um, Bethlehem and where they were headed is to the west of the Orient. So, why would you see a star in the east and go west? 
I mean, this is it's, this is the, this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. This is this is the, this is a story, okay? This is this is a story. So it's a higher meaning to the story. It's an allegory, something like that. But it's a story. When you look at a map, Bethlehem is to the west of the Orient. So why would you see a star in the east and go west? And they're on Camelback. We ain't gonna, we're not going to get into the distance that they had to travel on Camelback. But, you know, anyway. <laughs> read read Christianity Before Christ, but Dr. John G. Jackson also gets deep into a lot of this history and the pre-Christian origin and where a lot of these stories come from. Then he deals with the different crucified saviors as well. Okay, Christianity Before Christ, but Dr. John G. Jackson. Kersey Gray's book, uh, The World's 16 Crucified Saviors, does it also. He deals with about 27 crucified saviors as well. Um, so check that out. Okay. So this is a retelling of our ancient story. That goes throughout different cultures and the names for change and things like this. Right now in the, um, in the uh, Christian story, just as it was the who delivered the Annunciation to the Virgin Osset that she was going to give birth to Heru, okay? In the uh, Christian story, it is uh, Gabrielle, uh, I'm sorry, it's Gabriel, it's Gabriel, the messenger angel, who delivers the message to the Virgin Mary that she's going to give birth to Yeshua. So as, as, as we looked at uh, the chart here from, let me see, I'm flipping between right here. As we looked at the chart here from page 168, Now Valley Contributions to Civilization by Tony Browder. You go from Dahuti in ancient Kemet to Hermes in Greek mercury in rome and uh gabriel the messenger angel who delivers the annunciation to the virgin mary just like the Houthi delivered the annunciation to Osset. okay now when we look at patron saints very quickly to understand the connection between all this because we see as they go through different um cultures they're taking different aspects from african spirituality infusing it into different european cultures and we see this with we see this with the deities now if we look here at um let me see i want to go oh, i didn't want to close that out if we look here at i want to go to Yeah, right here. So this little chart right here shows how different deities from ancient Kemet, African deities, get incorporated into Greek mythology, then Roman mythology, and how these different, they, they do a comparative analysis between these different deities, and it shows how they have this, the, the same aspects. 
So if you look at Amun, okay, who is who is the creator Amun or Amin Ra, Amin, Amin Ra. This is where the word I'm a man, what they call it, say a man or Amin comes from. That's in Christianity. That comes from ancient Kemet. Amun in Greece, in, in, in the Greek mythology, Zeus would be the equivalent. When you study Zeus in Greek mythology, they tell you Zeus comes from Ethiopia. Because Zeus was originally African. Zeus was originally black. Okay. It's going to be later that he gets depicted as a European. Zeus, in, in Greek mythology, they tell you Zeus comes from Ethiopia, just like Hercules was black in Greek mythology. In Rome, you have Jupiter, and they, they're the ruler of the deities, okay? The ruler of the gods, ruler of the deities. Uh, Bess, uh, in ancient Kemet, Dionysus uh, in Greek, and Bacchus in Rome, god of wine and reckless behavior. Dehuti, Thoth, Hermes, Greek, Mercury, Rome, messenger of the gods and god of science. Het Heru, Hathor in ancient Kemet, Aphrodite in Greek, in Greece, Venus in Rome, goddess of love and beauty. Heru or Horus in amongst the Greek and Romans, Apollo, the son of God, also associated with light and the sun. And a lot of depictions that you see of Jesus, he has a sun disc behind his head. Imhotep, ancient Kemet, Asclepius in Greece, and Asclepius in Rome, god of healing. Neat in ancient Kemet, in Greece, Athena, Rome, Minerva, goddess of crafts, war, and wisdom. Okay, so lastly, we look at patron saints to tie all this together. What's a patron saint? Because when you, when, you, when, you, when you look at what happened with Christianity, they removed the, the Neturu from ancient Kemet. They removed those deities, replaced them with the patron saints because the, the Neturu were said to have watched over groups of people. Different cities had a different deity that they said watched over them and protected them in addition to the supreme force, the supreme being, okay? Well, that's the same thing that you have in Christianity with patron saints, just like that, just like St. Maurice was a patron saint who, who was a more St. Maurice. He was a patron saint to Germany. What's a patron saint. We look at, we look at Britannica concise encyclopedia. Well, you can pick your source that you want to look at for patron saints, a saint whose protection and intercession, a person, society, church, place, profession or activity is dedicated. The choice is usually made on the basis of some real or presumed relationship. For example, St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland because he is credited with introducing Christianity there, even though he was a mass murderer and killed a lot to kill the druids and kill the Irish people, killed thousands of them. He was a mass murderer. He was sent in for go watch the presentation I did dealing with the history of, of St. Patrick's Day and St. Patrick and African-Americans celebrating St. Patrick's Day, honoring a mass murderer. 
Okay. So St. Patrick was a patron saint to Ireland. Then you look at uh, um, St. Nicholas. Okay. St. Nicholas. Well, originally St. Nicholas was, was black. He was African because a lot of your early Christian saints were African saints. A lot of your early Christian saints were African saints and Christianity prior to the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD, early Christianity looks a lot like traditional African spiritual systems also. It's at these ecumenical councils where they're going to change what is believed, what is taught, what is written, all the, the all that stuff gets changed at the ecumenical councils. But you have St. Maurice, the Moor, patron saint of Germany, St. Patrick of Ireland, St. Nicholas, who is a patron saint of Amsterdam and, and Russia, but St. Nicholas is also a patron saint to uh, children, prostitutes, pawnbrokers, money lenders, uh, uh, seamen, navy men, things like this. St. Nicholas was a patron saint to all those people. St. Benedict the Moor of Par uh, Palermo in uh, San Frantello, uh, Sicily. He's also called Il Moro, with uh, Italian for dark-skinned, okay? He was a patron saint as well. So when you look at the patron saints, the patron saints replaced the Netaru. This is uh, some original depictions of St. Nicholas, who the, um, the secular character, the mythological character of Santa Claus is a combination of center class coming from the Dutch, okay? And then also combining with the real Saint, Saint Nicholas, because center class is Dutch, which means Saint Nicholas, okay? It, we, so we, you do it, you do it, um, you, you do it with um, center class, um, and uh, Joie de Piet, Black Pete, the Moor, who was his helper, or in some versions of the story, um, he would, uh, Joie de Piet was enslaved, okay? So you get into this history, you get into the history of the Moors, the, you, you get into evidence of the history of the Moors in Europe. But who was St. Nicholas, Greek Orthodox bishop, born in 280 AD in Myra? present-day Turkey, um, born to uh, wealthy uh, parents and gave away his inheritance to the poor, patron saint to children, uh, pa patron saint to, uh, to children, seamen, prostitutes, pawnbrokers, palm, palm etc. Read uh, Christmas, Miscell Christmas Miscellany by Jonathan Green, pages 40, in 63 through 64, he deals with some of the myths um, about uh, St. Nicholas, okay? There's one myth about him saving some boys uh, who were uh, stuck in a barrel. Uh, there's another myth about him saving some girls from prostitution. Um, Okay. All right, let's continue here. 
Now, also, if you like this type of information, give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like. Uh, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. That helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. Um, and then we have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also. Um, we have the, if you've been watching my show, you know I, I talked about the fake African History Network Cash App accounts out there. So I've made progress. Cash App is launching an investigation into them. I was actually able to get correspondence uh, with the, the right people at Cash App. So uh, I'm making progress on that. This is official Cash App account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it says Michael, it shows my picture there. We have the link here and our PayPal button. And then also uh, our 10 week online class is starting up uh, Saturday, April 23rd, ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade they didn't teach you in school. Class number one starts up p.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, April 23rd. We do what the years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. So you can go back and watch it anytime. A year from now, you can go back and watch the entire course. Okay. So we have the information on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. The second class that I teach is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. That's on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. We have a new session of that starting up also. And we have a bundle pack. You can register for both classes for $120. That's a $260 value. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. You get a 50% discount uh, on the courses in the bundle pack. Okay, let's continue. Okay, somebody asked a question. Can you tell me the name of those books again? Um, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Tony Browder. And uh, at the beginning, we talked about African people and European holidays and mental genocide by Dr. Shaka Musa Barashango, book one and book two, where he goes through and breaks down the history of all these European holidays we've been taught to celebrate. So once again, I'm not I'm not saying don't celebrate the holidays. What I'm saying is we should at least know the history of what it is that we're celebrating uh so that you are informed because many of us have not been taught the history of these holidays we've been taught to celebrate and if you do choose to continue to celebrate it after you understand the history what it is that you're celebrating it will probably change how you participate in it because you'll be more educated okay now uh, let's continue. I'm going to go back to the PowerPoint presentation here just a second. Um, let me pull this back up. Okay, so that's uh, Patron Saint. And then if you're not familiar with Joie de Piet, Black Pete, this is a depiction of Black Pete right here. Uh, Joie de Piet, Joie de meaning dark or swarthy. And this is uh, celebrated in Holland, okay, right around uh, from November to um, part of November and going up to December 5th or 6th, they have these celebrations of Joie de Piet, Black Pete, in Holland. And you have Europeans putting on blackface, and they say that uh, uh, 
the center class is in black Pete. They're coming on a steamboat from Spain. They're coming on a steamboat from Spain. Okay. Uh, well, Spain is where you was the Iberian Peninsula, and that's where uh, the Moors conquered. And that's where they go in in 711 AD, Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, and they conquer and you know they settle in Al Andalus, the southern portion of uh, Spain. If you look very quickly here, if you look at this article from the Washington Post. Center class and Joie de Piet while holiday has me talking to my kids about blackface. They um they show center class here on this on this boat with white people in blackface pretending to be Joie de Piet the more and they put on red lipstick and afro wigs, things like this. Okay, and they they're coming to uh, the Netherlands, but they're coming from Spain. The tradition is this on the second Saturday of November, Joie de Piet, Black Pete, arrives in the Netherlands. Hold on, let me go back to this. Where is it here? On the second Saturday of November, Joie de Piet, Black Pete, arrives in the Netherlands. Um, on a steamboat from Spain, on a steamboat from Spain, along with center class, a towering, thin, and plushly dressed figure. Hundreds of people gathered to watch the steamboat arrive with the piets dancing and waving while brass band music plays until center class disembarks on the white horse. With the piets walking at his side to greet and offer treats to children. The ritual repeats in various cities across the Netherlands until December 5th, the name day of St. Nicholas. Okay. Joie de Piet is according to folklore, an assistant to center clash and of Moorish descent. Traditionally, since Piet's first appearance in the children's book in 1850, Joie de Piet is portrayed as a very dark-skinned character with large red lips, curly black hair, and giant hoop earrings. When Piets appear in person, they are portrayed by volunteers in blackface. So this is make this is really making fun of the Moors that they were conquered. Some are going to be enslaved, things like this. So each year, there's been more and more. Uh, in the Netherlands, there's been more and more protests against the celebration of Joie de Piet to shut it down because they're saying this is racist. Okay, now, let me go back to, okay, let me go back to this one here. I think I could close this one out. Let's go back to this one here. Okay, so we left off. Okay, let's go back to this here. We were talking about pagan. What does pagan mean? Okay, let's pull this back up. Um, 
I'm going to go here. What does pagan mean? Um, just a second. Okay. No, I think it'll open back up. Here we go. Right there. Okay. Okay, so let's go back to this slide here. What does pagan mean? Um, an adherent of a polytheistic religion in antiquity, especially when viewed in contrast to an adherent of a monotheistic religion. So we, I just talked about that. Um, middle at the bottom, Middle English from late Latin paganus. Paganus from uh from latin which means country dweller civilian from pagus which means country or rural district so in its original form it just referred to somebody who was it, it just referred to something that was practiced by people in a rural district country dwellers something that was indigenous to a group of people okay a practice that was indigenous to a group of people something like that it may be referred to like how you have people who live in the country and you may say, oh, they're in the country. They, they, they may be backwards or something like this, what have you, something like that. But over time, it became to mean something very negative, pagan. But in its original form, it's not something negative. Now, where does the name... Easter come from? Where does the name Easter come from? Like many other Christian feasts, the celebration of Easter contains a number of originally pagan or folk religious elements tolerated by the church, tolerated by the church. Among these are customs associated with the Easter egg. Easter breads and other special holiday foods and the European concept of the Easter hare, H-A-R-E, which is an animal, a bunny, a rabbit, a Easter hare, or in America of the Easter rabbit, which brings baskets of candies and colored eggs during the night. Okay, the Easter bunny. The pagan roots of Easter involve the spring festivals of pre-Christian Europe and the Near East, which celebrate the rebirth of vegetation, welcoming the growing light as the sun becomes more powerful in its course toward summer. So it's things coming back to life. It's things, things go, you know, a lot of vegetation, and and the and the uh, uh, the leaves fall off the trees and things like this. So people wear vibrant colors, like for Easter, recognizing spring is coming back. So vegetation is going to start growing again. Things like this, the trees start budding with leaves, etc. Life is coming back. And we know that. 
Easter comes after the first day of spring also. So it's, it's in recognition of all of that, which celebrates the rebirth of vegetation, welcoming the growth, the growing light as the sun becomes more powerful in its course towards summer. It is significant that in England and Germany, the church accepted the name of the pagan goddess Easter, Anglo-Saxon Eostra, E-O-S-T-R-A. Her name has several spellings. They accepted this for the new Christian holiday. So depending upon which European language that you're looking at, you'll see different variations of, of um, her name. All right, now let's look at uh, pull that up. Okay. In Mediterranean Europe, Italy, Spain, and France, Christianity adopted Pasha a word derivative of Passover from which comes the adjective partial for things pertaining to Easter, such as the partial lamb, the partial lamb. Okay. And then when we talk about Germanic, Germanic, the term Germanic is relating to a characteristic of Germany or its people, language or culture. Um, of or relating to the branch of Indo-European language family that comprises North Germanic, West Germanic, and the extent and, and the extinct East, East Germanic. Um, when you hear the term Germanic peoples, especially during medieval times, it can also refer to the barbarians. Uh, you, you hear also referred to as barbarians. Uh, they talk about the, the Lombards, the Jutes, the Anglos, the Saxons, the Picts, the Allens, the Franks. Um, it's, it can also be in reference to what were collectively called barbarians. Now, goddesses Eostra and Ostara. Eostra and Ostara. The name Easter may have come from Eostra or, e, or Eastra or Eastra, however you pronounce it, E-A-S-T-R-E, the Teutonic or Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring and fertility whose feast was celebrated around the start of spring. She is associated with the hare, H-A-R-E, and egg, both symbols of creation, both symbols of creation. Astara is a uh, Germanic goddess who was always accompanied by a hare. Possibly the ancestor of our, our modern Easter bunny. The association of both the rabbit and eggs with Easter is probably the vestige of an ancient springtime fertility rite, R-I-T-E. Uh, you can look at 
uh, encyclopedia.com. They have information. History.com has information on that. They talk about a star or things like this. Encyclopedia.com as well. That this particular information on goddess Eostra and a star that comes from the Gale Encyclopedia on food and culture, but they have all this information at encyclopedia.com. There are different sources for this also. So you can look at different sources, not just one. I've looked at numerous sources on this. Now, Okay, Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. What's Mardi Gras? Shrove Tuesday celebrated as a holiday in many places with carnivals, masquerade balls, and parades of costume merrymakers. Uh, Mardi Gras, a, car a carnival period uh, coming to a climax on this day, an occasion of great fest festivity and merrymaking. Mardi, or Mardi, M-A-R-D-I, means Tuesday, and gras, G-R-A-S, means fat. From the feasting, from the feasting on Mardi Gras becomes Lenten fasting, or Fat Tuesday, that's what Mardi Gras means. Okay, in French, Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. All right, now, um, I'm going to come to the Tim Plagues here in just a second. Now, there's a good article from um, Time Magazine that I was looking at, time.com, this piece right here. Here's why Easter eggs are a thing. Here's why Easter eggs are a thing. This is this was updated April 14th, 2022, originally published April 14th, 2017. You can read the entire article. I'm not going through the whole thing. This is what I want to look at here. But when it comes to Easter eggs, evidence suggests that the obvious metaphor came after the association between the holiday and the item was already established. The origin of Easter eggs starts in medieval Europe but it may or may not have originated with Christians. According to some, the first Easter eggs actually belonged to a different religious tradition. Many scholars believe that Easter has its origins as an early Anglo-Saxon festival that celebrated the goddess Eastra, E-A-S-T-R-E, and the coming of spring, in a sense, a resurrection of nature after, after winter, in a sense, a resurrection of nature after winter because things are coming back to life. Vegetation, plants, things like this are coming back to life. Carol Levin, professor of history and director of the medieval and Renaissance studies program at the University of Nebraska tells Time Magazine in an email, quote, some Christian missionaries hoped that celebrating Christian holy days 
at the same time as pagan festivals would encourage conversion to Christianity, especially if some of the symbols carried over. And this is what the Roman Empire did when they were conquering people, they would incorporate things that the people they were conquer conquered celebrated and incorporated that into their, their various Christian celebrations. And we especially see this with Christmas. Eggs were part of the celebration of Easter. Apparently eggs were eaten at the festival and, all, and also possibly buried in the ground to encourage fertility. Okay, so read the rest. Read the rest of this here. And we know that also rabbits are also a uh, symbol of fertility because rabbits reproduce a lot. So rabbits are also a symbol of fertility as well. Okay, so okay, we got time. I'm gonna get that. Uh, okay, we did that. Now let's look at this here. I think this is the last thing. Ten plagues um, from the book of Exodus. Which one is that? Easter. Did I do that irrespective of it? Uh, and then, okay, before we go to that, there was one other thing that I wonder. Okay, if we look at this one here on Easter from history.com, there was one other part on page five. This right here, this one part on page five that deals with Easter eggs. Easter traditions. I want this one right here. Easter eggs, okay. Uh, regardless of denomination, because irrespective is not a word. Um, uh, I don't think irrespective is a word. That's a double negative. I know irregardless is not a word. But anyway. Maybe it is a word, but it sounds like a double negative. But anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. I think it is. Irregardless, it's not a word. But anyway. right here there are many eastern there are many easter time traditions with roots that can be traced to non-christian and even pagan or non-religious celebrations many non-christians choose to observe these traditions while essentially ignoring the religious aspects of the celebration examples of non-religious Easter traditions include Easter eggs and related games such as egg rolling 
and egg decorating. It is believed that eggs represented fertility and birth in certain pagan traditions that predate Christianity. Egg decorating may have become part of an Easter, uh, may have become part of the Easter celebration in a nod to the religious significance of Easter. Uh, for example, the uh, resurrection of Yeshua or Jesus or rebirth. Okay, so read the rest of that. Okay. Now, there's a good article that uh, on the Passover and even going back to, I think, 2017, I saw this article here. So we were talking about the 10 plagues from the book of Exodus. Now, what I say may go outside this comes to some people's awareness. Um, so if we look at this piece here on Passover from history.com, and let me pull this up here. I have it up in, um, I have it up here in Firefox. I need to open it in Google Chrome. So what is Passover? So Passover or Peshach in Hebrew is one of the Jewish religion's most sacred and widely observed holidays. In Judaism, Passover commemorates the story of the Israelites' departure from ancient Egypt, which appears in the Hebrew Bible's books of Exodus. Numbers and Deuteronomy, among other texts. Jews observe the week-long festival with a number of important rituals, including a traditional Passover meal known as Seder, the removal of leavened products from their home, the substitution of matzo for bread, and the retelling of the Exodus tale. K-T-A-L-E. Now, if we look at, let me see here, and I'll leave this out. Okay, for the, for the sake of time, you can um, read the rest of this and talks about Moses and Pharaoh and all this stuff. And, I, and the Bible doesn't tell you which Pharaoh they're talking about, but you, you do all that. You can go through all that. Um, still, okay, so they talk about the story of Moses. 
you know, this, um, okay, when he reaches adulthood, Moses becomes aware of his true identity and the Egyptians' brutal treatment of his fellow Hebrews. And Okay. Um, he kills an Egyptian slave master and escapes to the Sinai Peninsula where he lives as a humble shepherd for 40 years. One day, Moses receives a command from God to return to Egypt and free his kin from bondage. Okay. According to the Hebrew Bible. All right. Now, 10 plagues. When the Pharaoh refuses, in the story, they don't tell you which Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a title, not a name. Just saying. When the Pharaoh refuses a Nasubiti, because Nasubiti would be the correct term, God unleashes 10 plagues on the Egyptians. So God is punishing the African people. Okay. <laughs> Including turning the Nile red with blood, disease, livestock, boils, hailstorms, and three days of darkness culminating in the slaying of every firstborn son by an avenging angel. Okay. Culminating the slaying. Okay. So you killing African children, African infants. The Israelites, however, mark the door of their homes with lamb's blood so the angel of death will recognize and, quote unquote, pass over each Jewish household. Terrified of further punishment, the, the Egyptians con convinced their ruler to release the Israelites and Moses quickly leads them out of Egypt. This is the Exodus. The Pharaoh changes his mind, however, and sends his soldiers to retrieve the former slaves. As the Egyptian army approaches the fleeing Jews at the end of the Red Sea, a miracle occurs. God causes the sea to part. Okay, the parting of the Red Sea. All right, you see that in the in the that uh, movie uh, Ten Commandments, where they show Ramses and and Nefertiti or Nefertari as as Europeans, basically. This I posted this uh, on our Facebook fan page, uh, the African History Network, a couple of days ago. You got. We got a ton of comments. Um, let me pull this thing up here. This is um, this this a historical depiction of ancient Kemetic people, ancient Egyptians. Let me go back to this here. Where is that? This right here. Let me pull this up. So I posted this. Let me see. Hold on. This is the. Uh... Okay, we got to slide down and pull that up here.
So it was Euro Brenner and um, what was her name? Ann Baxter. She was Nefertari. This right here. So I posted this on our uh, Facebook fan page, the African History Network. I said, straight up BS. These actors are portraying ancient African comedic Egyptian rulers as Europeans. This is from the Ten Commandments. So this is from, I saw this from Do You Remember When, the uh, Facebook page, Do You Remember When. So this got like 587 comments. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So just, just more Hollywood nonsense. Now, it goes on to say that this, this piece here is from history.com, official website of the History Channel. You can look at other sources. As the Egyptian army approaches, the fleeing Jews, uh, the fleeing Jews at the edge of the Red Sea, a miracle occurs. God causes the sea to part, allowing Moses and his followers to cross safely, then closes the passage and drowns the Egyptians. According to the Hebrew Bible, the Jews now numbering in the hundreds of thousands, okay, now numbering the hundreds of thousands, then trek through the Sinai Desert for 40 tumultuous years before finally reaching their ancestral home in Canaan, later known as the land of Israel. Now, really is going to be close to probably about 2 million of them roaming throughout the Sinai Desert for 40 years, according to the story. Now, if you go on to read this, then they have a section here called Questions of Historical Accuracy. They say for centuries, Scott, now this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Okay. For centuries, scholars have been debating the details and historical merit of the events commemorated during the Passover holiday. Despite numerous attempts, historians and archaeologists have failed to corroborate the tale of the Jews' enslavement in and mass exodus from Egypt. Now, this is not an African-centered or Afrocentric source saying this. This is the History Channel. Although the ancient Egyptians kept thorough records, no mention is made of an Israelite community within their midst or any calamities resembling the 10 biblical plagues. There is also no, now this is extremely important because if you had close to 2 million people, Roaming through the Sinai Desert for 40 years. Do you understand that? I throw off the ecology of the desert and there still be evidence there of them today. There'll still be evidence. There'll still be 
evidence. They're going to be skeletons. There's going to be things that they buried. The question you, the question you would ask is what did almost 2 million people eat for 40 years in the desert? Where did they get water from? There's also no evidence of large encampments in the Sinai Peninsula, the fabled site of the Jews wandering, or any sudden fluctuation in Israel's record, uh, archaeological record that would indicate the departure and return of a large population. A handful of scholars, including the first Jewish historian, Josephus, have suggested a link between the Israelites and the Hyksos, the shepherd kings that invade uh, ancient Kemet, a mysterious Semitic people possibly from Canaan who controlled lower Kemet or Egypt for more than 100 years before the expulsion during the 16th uh, century B.C. Most modern academics, however, have dismissed this theory due to chronological conflicts and a lack of similarity between the two cultures. I'm not telling you don't celebrate Easter. I'm just saying understand the history behind what it is that you're celebrating. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you have a million and a half to two million people roaming through a desert for 40 years, there's going to be archaeological evidence left behind. Overwhelming. It's going to throw off the ecology. It's going to. <laughs> you, they leave this evidence left behind. Okay, so I don't know what to say. Okay, all right. Um, you don't have to believe a word that I say. Proper documentation is all conversation. You do your own research. You don't have to believe me. Okay, I'm just saying. You don't have to believe me. Um, we we did that one. That one. Oh, let's look at this here. Nrf dot uh, nrf dot com National Retail Federation. So when we look at when I go research these different holidays and look at the, the money that they generate. Okay. And I mean, I, I, I understand people want to buy Easter clothes and a, a new suit and dress and hat and gloves and shoes. And I, I, can, I understand that. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying understand the history behind what it is you're participating in. More consumers hunting for bargains this Easter. Uh, this is from National Retail Federation. Consumers plan to spend an average $169.79 this year on Easter-related items. According to results of the annual survey released today by the National Retail Federation and Proper Insights and Analytics, a total of 80% of Americans will celebrate the holiday and spend a collective 
$20.8 billion, which is down slightly from last year's forecast of $21.6 billion. This is the type of money that's generated from Easter, $20.8 billion, okay? Now, we want, we, we want retail store, we want the economy to do well, we want African-American stores to do well, things like this, but not singling out Easter, but when I look at any of these holidays, we did the same thing for St. Patrick's Day, same thing for Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, things like this. We I also go to National Retail Federation to look at what the projections are for spending. My background's in marketing, okay? So I learned about the National Retail Federation years ago. All right, so you can um, check that out also. NRF.com, National Retail Federation. Okay, so we did that, that, that. Uh, this information, Britannica has some good information on Easter also that you can look at if you like. This one right here, um, Easter. Because I definitely look at the sources I pay money to each month. I mean, e each month, yeah, because I have a subscription to Britannica. Um, so I use some of their information in my classes. So I had to get a subscription to them. So they have some information here on Easter. That's some good information here. Um, and you see, they talk about the venerable bead also. Yep, the English word Easter, which parallels the German word Ostern, is of uncertain origin. One view expounded by the Venerable Bede, who became Saint Bede the Venerable in the 8th century, uh, because Bede dies in, was it 735 AD he dies? I think it's like 735 735 A.D., May 26, he dies, right? The Venerable Bede. Um, Venerable, the Venerable Bede in the 8th century uh, said that uh, the word Easter was derived from Eostra or Eostre, the Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring and fertility. This view presumes, as does the view associating the origin of Christmas on December 25th with pagan celebrations of the winter solstice, that Christmas appropriated pagan names and holidays from the highest festivals. Okay. Um, okay. So you can read the rest of this also. Okay. So we get that. We did that. I did all that. All right. We got all did that and Time Magazine uh, and NRF. We deal with the 10 plagues. All right. Okay. Uh, be sure if you like this type of information, you can register for the online history classes that I teach on Saturday and Sunday. So we have a new, we have some new classes starting up. Um, uh, Saturday, April 23rd. Saturday, April 23rd, um, Ancient Kemet, one of the original names for Egypt, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. This is a 10-week online history class that I teach. I do a PowerPoint presentation. 
We have book references, articles, video clips. Some of the slides that I showed you, uh, there's a few of the slides that we use in the class because there's over 200 slides in the class. Um, and we go through and uh, look at history chronologically. We can't start studying our history in slavery. Um, we look at the uh, African presence in the Americas going back at least 51,700 years also. So we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. As soon as you register, we have some archived content that you can start watching. Uh, the class is on sale $80, regularly $130. Even after the course is over with, you can go back and watch the entire class. I just posted the link here. So as soon as you register, we got a ton of content for you to start watching. You also can get some bonus lectures uh, from me also in digital format that you can you can stream, you can watch. And then we uh, also have another class starting up uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And that's going to be on uh, Sundays, 2 p.m. to 11, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. OK, that second class, um, that's going to pick up where the first one leaves off. OK, the second class is going to be $80, also regularly $130. Now. Um. We have a bundle pack. You can register for uh, both classes at a discount. It's a $260 value. You can register for both classes for uh, $120, okay? So click right there, register here. This is on the homepage of our website, africanhistorynetwork.com. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, Show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And um, you'll get a, uh, you get a 50% discount. All right, and in these classes, we look at, uh, we go through, we look at history chronologically. There's a timeline of history that we look at. Uh, we can't start studying our history in slavery, even when we study the transatlantic slave trade, which is important to study. We can't start in 1619 or in the 1440s when the Portuguese uh, get involved. Uh, we have to understand the history chronologically and deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors, who enter into the Iberian Peninsula in 711 AD, the day known as Spain and Portugal. Uh, from Africa to going from Morocco. This, and uh, uh, in, uh, in, in this course, we, we not only deal with the transatlantic slave trade, but we deal with thousands of years of history. And we deal with the African presence in the Americas going back over 50,000 years and South America going back at least 56,000 years ago. And in the land we call the United States of America going back at least 51,700 years ago, okay? And that deals with uh, uh, the Khoisan, um, and Dr. David M. Hotep deals with this in his book, uh, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. And we know the Khoisan had the oldest DNA on the planet, they're the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. Uh, they come from Southern Africa, they go all around the world. And uh, page uh, 14 of his book deals with the discovery 
made in Allendale County, South Carolina in 2004 by Dr. Albert Goodyear, which fairly documents an African presence in the land we call the United States of America going back at least 51,700 years ago. This is before Native Americans came into existence. Um, Dr. Albert Goodyear found 13 different types of evidence documenting an African presence in the area we call South Carolina. They found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints in lava, genetic M174D haploid groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, scales, skeleton, linguistics, paintings, uh, uh, skeleton structures, and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence documenting an African presence. Okay, so uh, you can also use that with your children as well. Uh, the class I would say is PG-13, both of them. Uh, that went in from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement to Black Power, 1865 and 1968. Okay, so you can register for those. And um, also, if you like this type of information, you support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, et cetera. All right. And uh, we have the information on our website and here's the link also. And when you go to our cash app account, it'll say Michael and show my picture there also. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember the African History Network, uh, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. Uh, Monday through Friday, basically I'm on uh, 11 p.m. to midnight Eastern Standard Time, the African History Network show. Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we have the information here uh, on our website also. We're celebrating our 12th year anniversary, anniversary of me broadcasting the African History Network show. First started March 10th, 2010, it, and it's been six years of me doing it on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Uh, download the iHeartRadio app, search for the African History Network show. They have about 300 of my audio podcasts there of my shows and broadcasts. You can also, you can also listen to 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF through the iHeartRadio app uh, as well. You can listen to me there live or watch me on Facebook and YouTube. The, the African History Network on Facebook and Michael M. Hotep on YouTube. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, the African History Network, you focus on educating and empowering inspiring the African people, uh, people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Oh, I got to tell you about the uh, Hop Heat Conference. Uh, so I've been talking about this and it's going on uh, in Detroit. Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor James Small will be here. I'm wearing my Hop Heat shirt. Hop Heat is one of the original names for the Nile River. Uh, got to tell you about this. The Power on One Conference, Power on One Unity Conference. Saturday, April 30th, uh, 2022, Double Tree Hotel in Detroit. Uh, Sunday, May 1st, we have three of my teachers going to be here uh, doing presentations. Dr. Lynn Jeffries, Professor Jane Small, Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamane. Uh, then we also had Dr. Rosalind Jeffries, uh, uh, Dr. Mawulana Karinga, Infidushi Jehutimas. We should have him on the show this week. Uh, Jabari Osazi, Asar M. Hotep. I think we have them on the show also. Asar M. Hotep, Dr. Ken Harris. They're all going to be doing presentations. 
um, Shahrazad Ali, Dr. Alicia Watkins, they'll all be doing presentations. I'm not sure if I'm, I think I may be on one of the panels or something. Uh, I'll be a vendor there though as well. This is taking place at the Double Tree Hotel. We're going to post the link here. We'll put this on our website also. If you can't come in person, you can live stream this from around the world. Okay, this is the Power and Unity Conference. So if you can't come in person, that's fine, not a problem. You can live stream it from around the world. We're going to post the link here, and it ha uh, has the link for you to register. All right, we got that. And um, we'll put that on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the homepage, so you can register there as well. All right, we have to get out of here. Right now, it's correct, wrong behavior. It's not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate. One, they solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with real estate note investing. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as-is condition and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com. That's AbundantCapitalGroup.com. And email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group.